Amen. Praise the Lord, church. Amen. Just feels good to be in God's house and lift up his name. How many are thankful for the, the worship service just to lift the Lord up? Amen. Amen. The prayer time we've already had, I'm so thankful for the Lord and his touch. Amen. In just a moment, we're going to go to Isaiah chapter 6. Of course, I'd like to give honor to Pastor Cox. So thankful for him and his leadership and Brother Brom, the other leaders here. And you always have to say a big shout out to Brother Lear, right? Brother and Sister Lear. We love them so much. So thankful for all that they've done in my life. And so today we're going to look at two passages. And uh, the first one's a little bit shorter, second one's a little bit longer. So just buckle in, okay? It's, it's going to be all right, I hope. But we're going to talk today about the preacher's dilemma. All right, the preacher's dilemma. And uh, I know, hung out with Brother Ramirez a little bit. He's probably thinking, that guy with the microphone, I know he has a lot of dilemmas. But I'm not talking about just me in general. I'm talking about all preachers, everybody that, whether you have a microphone or whether you are out speaking the truth in a Bible study, wherever it is, the preacher's dilemma, that's going to be our focus today. So a very, very familiar passage of Scripture, Isaiah chapter 6 And we're going to start at verse 1, and then we're going to skip down a little bit. It says in verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple, or his his garments filled the temple. How many of you know that even if the earthly king dies, there's still a king on the throne? Amen? Amen. This is a very famous passage. If you were to keep reading, you would read about these angelic creatures called the seraphim. They're flying and they're, they're worshiping the Lord, crying, holy, holy, holy. And, and there's smoke and the, there's a shaking of the temple. And then when Isaiah sees this holy display, he falls down. Or Well, actually, uh, I can't remember if it just says he exactly falls down. But he says, woe is me. And he's, he's really uh, feeling this, uh, how unholy he is in the presence of a holy God. But then God provides, and there's cleansing of sin. And Isaiah then hears, in verse 8, th- this, Brother Cox, is probably the part where people, maybe they don't read as much, or they don't focus as much on these next couple verses. But I think that these couple verses here, Brother Kermis, display the preacher's dilemma for us. In verse 8, it says, Also, Isaiah says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then Isaiah said, Here am I, send me. And God said, Go and tell this people. This would be the, the Israelites of the kingdom of Judah. At this time, Israel had split. There's two kingdoms right now of Israel and Judah. And tell this people, verse 9, Hear ye indeed, but understand not. And see ye indeed, but perceive not. So God says, they're going to hear, but they're not going to understand. They're going to see, but they're not going to understand what they're seeing. And verse 10 says, through, the, through your preaching, Isaiah, make the heart of this people fat. They will be so content, is what that is saying, that they don't want to change. And make their ears heavy, and they'll, they'll shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and convert and be healed. So what in the world is God saying here? How are people going to see but not perceive? How are people going to grow so comfortable that they don't want to change? How are people going to close their eyes and they're going to plug their ears? What's, gonna, what, what's God saying here? What, let, let me ask you this. What is preaching doing in this moment? And I would dare say, Brother Ramirez, not very much. Preaching in this case is not impacting hearts and ears and spiritual eyes. Well, why is that? Well, this connects us to our preacher's dilemma, which we will get to in a moment. <clears throat> Isaiah is, uh, I'm going I'm to paraphrase a little bit. Isaiah is saying, so wait a second, God. You just asked who's going to go and preach Who's going to share the truth, Brother Crane? And I said, I will. I'm a, Isaiah's all excited to, to preach the truth. And God says, okay, go, but your preaching is not going to impact people the way that you think it's going to. 
So wait a second, God, what are you trying to say? You mean I'm going to preach, but no revival is going to come? And in verse 11, Isaiah asks God, Lord, how long? How long am I supposed to preach like this? How long is this going to go on? And God's response is, until the cities be wasted without inhabitant, and the houses without man, and the land be utterly desolate. Oof. I leaned over to Brother Cox and I said, you may not have me preach again after this. <laughs> but what is God saying? You're going to preach. And you're going to preach until judgment comes. You're going to preach until everything is desolate. You're going to preach until nobody's living in these homes. You're going to preach until everybody's taken away. You're going to preach and they will not listen. Thankfully, if you continue to read when you get to verse 13, uh, we're, we're going to save this for another aspect, but how many of you are thankful for God's grace? Because verse 13, it ends the chapter by saying restoration will come. So I'm not just trying to preach judgment and that's all there is. So I, I want to make sure we, we end on the right note there that there is restoration in God's plan. But I want us to look at this preacher's dilemma. So what is the preacher's dilemma? I was reading a scholar a couple months ago, and, and he started to talk about this preacher's dilemma. And he said that when people are living in sin, the only way, Brother Zalke, for them to be free, like we sang about today, is through the truth. And how is someone going to hear the truth? Through preachers. Again, whether you have a microphone or whether you're, Brother, uh, Brother Horwath, there you are, you're out doing your street ministry or whether you're sitting down in a Bible study, wherever the truth is shared, that is sharing the Word of God, sharing in, in a, and, and becoming a preacher. So what, what the scholar was saying is the only way for someone to become free is through truth. So there must be a presentation of the truth. But the dilemma, the preacher's dilemma, is that not only can truth not, it, the Bible doesn't say set you free. It says make you or mold you free. Not only can truth make you free, but if so, it, it allows another opportunity for someone not only to hold on to the truth, but to reject it. And when truth is rejected, something happens to the heart. And when we read in the Bible about the heart, how we might even say today is the will our inner desires, what we want, our wills. So <clears throat> the scholar, it just struck me so deeply because he's saying the only way for someone to become free is through the truth. But then when they hear the truth, if they reject it, they step a little bit further away from the Lord. But then it's a cycle because the only way for them to get back to freedom is to hear the truth. But if they hear the truth again and they reject it, they, they step a little bit further away and the heart gets hardened over and over until, let, let me illustrate to you like this. It's when you're presented with the truth, it's okay, God, not yet. Okay, not yet. Not yet. Until eventually, Brother Crane, it's never. That is the preacher's dilemma. The colder, the, the, the hardening of the heart or the, the blinding of the eyes. But when you read, and okay, it's one, one reason I felt so challenged in this, in this message, not necessarily, I mean, I, I felt to do tonight, but it's not like I thought, oh, Mankato needs to hear this. Okay, so don't think that. But uh, when, when I, I was teaching a, a high school class, I was teaching a class from Kings and Chronicles, and um, we're going to get to <clears throat> one of these texts in just a second. And I didn't plan this, but over time, myself and the students, we just kept seeing this same issue come up. People hardening their own hearts and being blind to the truth. And I just, I just asked the students, I said, now do you see how many times this is coming up? And they're like, yeah. And they could tell. I mean, I didn't, I didn't write this, Brother Cox, right? I mean, I'm just teaching it. And over and over again, this issue of the heart. And, and I keep saying blindness. But I'm not talking, of course, about like they can't see the truth just because God's hidden it from them or whatever the case is. It's because people themselves close their eyes. <clears throat> so Isaiah is sent 
to the nation of of Judah, and and, uh, he even has some words for Israel as well. Remember, there are two kingdoms here. And how many, like we hear that phrase, the the children of Israel, right? Anybody recognize that phrase? Or the the people of Israel, we hear hear those terms and we know they they came out of Egypt, right? The the Red Sea, they they came into the promised land. and, And okay, how many of you remember the book of Judges? My goodness, right? How many times are they coming to the Lord and then they're turning away from the Lord? We remember all those stories, right? But we, we need to never forget this, that yes, it's the same nation and eventually the same kingdom, but these are not the same individuals, right? I mean, this is, this is hundreds of years of, of families and, and generations that go by time and time again. You have, and I'm, I'm not going to uh, quiz you on the timeline aspect, of course, but you know, you got Moses all the way over here, and then 700 years later, you have Isaiah, 700 years of history from Moses to Isaiah. So this is telling me that we should be careful not to say, oh, those, those ridiculous Israelites, when are they ever going to get it right? Because these are all different groups, or excuse me, all different families, all different individuals. And you know what that tells me? This is not just a oh, you know, ridiculous Israelite situation. This is a human issue. <clears throat> this is a human problem. <clears throat> So in Moses' day and in the judges' era, there are, there are good leaders and there are uh, wicked leaders. There are good leaders like Samuel and David, but then we read of many corrupt leaders through idolatry and, and idol worship. They're turning away and doing sinful and pagan things. One of the most famous individuals in uh, the Old Testament as far as his wickedness is King Ahab. Remember King Ahab married Queen Jezebel, and they, they were so wicked. And, and I want to lay just a little bit of groundwork here, because this is going to become important in just a, in just a moment. <clears throat> but Ahab and Queen Jezebel, she is not an Israelite. She was from a nation further north. She introduced such pagan and terrible uh, idol worship into the kingdom of Israel, and Ahab just kind of went along with it and, and uh, worshiped right along with her. And it got to the point of where not only are they worshiping false gods, but you know, who you worship, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to move into not just your, uh, well, how can I say it uh, li- like this, it, it's not just like your, your private worship uh, life or your religious life, it, it connects to the rest of who you are. Because who you worship, it's, it's going to dictate and, and almost uh, uh, lead you to how you interact with other people until not only are Ahab and uh, Jezebel worshiping false gods, but they're very corrupt in their leadership. Because not only are they worshiping idols, but there comes a story of this man named Naboth. Everybody remember that? I know I'm laying a lot of groundwork here. We're building up here. But Naboth had a vineyard. And Ahab wanted that vineyard. And what does Jezebel do? You study it out in 1 Kings 21. She makes it look very pious, what they're about to do. She makes it look like, uh, you know, well, what is she going to do? She's going to bring false accusations against Naboth. She's going to have some, some scum, low life, excuse me, go and, and take Naboth out. And, and something that uh, is crazy to me that I just found out, I just realized this, uh, going through this uh, in this particular class, Naboth was not the only one that died, but a, li- a couple chapters later tells us that they also killed his sons. So we have to, we have to get something here because Ahab has opened himself up to false idols. And eventually, he can do whatever he wants to do because he doesn't believe in a true God that will lead him and command him to do certain things. So <clears throat> Naboth, I hope I've, I hope I've not uh, confused this too much with that story, but you have Naboth is murdered. Ahab goes and he's celebrating in this nice, nice vineyard that he has just stolen through murder. And God does not even let Ahab enjoy that for very long at all before God sends the prophet Elijah. And Elijah says, there's some things that are going to happen. There's judgment. Okay, what, what's another word for judgment? Justice. There's going to be, because God's a just God. God doesn't bl- ha- turn a blind eye to wickedness. So that's kind of the groundwork because now we're going to look at 1 Kings 22 where judgment has already been proclaimed against Ahab. And uh, 
Brother and Sister Parker, he repents a little bit, like just a little bit. Not a lot, but he's kind of sorry, but he doesn't turn his life around. Jezebel most, most certainly did not. In the context for 1 Kings 22, it begins like this. Ahab wants to go to war against another enemy nation in the north, and he, he wants some help. He wants an alliance to be made with a, an in-law family member named Jehoshaphat. Now, Jehoshaphat, Brother Menjavar, he's supposed to be a good king. So why is he teaming up with this wicked king Ahab? Well, maybe we could do a study on him another time. But Ahab, he invites Jehoshaphat to come. These are both kings of those two kingdoms that we've already referenced, one of Israel and the other one of Judah. So Ahab asks the other king, hey, Jehoshaphat, do you want to come and team up with me and we'll go attack these enemies because, you know, they're probably wanting to attack you a little bit too. We can team up. And Jehoshaphat does something that, you know, if, if we had to admit it, Pastor, we probably do this a lot as well. He says yes to something before he seeks God's counsel. And he agrees, and then Ahab's like, oh yeah, let's get the armies together. And then Brother Zachary Jehoshaphat then says, well, actually, maybe we should talk to God about that. And Ahab's like, oh yeah, I, I know what you're saying. Let's, let's, uh, let's start with verse 6. Ahab, that's the king of Israel, gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said unto them, Shall I go against Ramoth Gilead to battle, or shall I forbear or not go? And they said, Go up, for the Lord shall deliver it unto the hand of the king. And Ahab's like, Oh yeah, see, I told you, Jehoshaphat, it's all good. But just because someone is called a prophet, we better identify whose prophet they are. And uh, verse 7, Jehoshaphat says, okay, he knows who Ahab worships. Jehoshaphat knows that Ahab does not worship the Lord. And, and I, I resist the urge to talk about what we align ourselves with, the, un, the ungodly in certain circumstances, but you... Uh, I think we know, we know this here. So verse 7, Jehoshaphat said, Is there not a prophet of the Lord that we might inquire of him? Isn't, isn't there a godly prophet that he could, he could talk, you know, that we could talk to, a, a good godly man? And verse 8 exposes the heart of Ahab because now we know why he keeps those 400 prophets around. The king of Israel, Ahab, says unto Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man, Micaiah, the son of Imlah, by whom we, we may inquire of the Lord. But look at this next line. In a way, it kind of makes me laugh. But I hate him. You can, like, when you read about Ahab, sometimes you get, like, like a, a tantrum aspect of him. Like, when, when Naboth wouldn't sell the vineyard, Ahab goes home and he's, like, pouting in his bed. And Jezebel's like, act like a king. You're a king. So you get this from Ahab a little bit. He's like, oh, I hate that guy. I hate this prophet. Why? Because he never prophesies anything good to me. He only prophesies evil. Now, that doesn't mean sinful. Sometimes in the Bible when it uses words like evil, it just means like judgment or calamity. It doesn't mean sinful. And so, <clears throat> this little side note on, on this verse. Now we know why Ahab keeps those 400 prophets around. Because if you have 400 prophets telling you what you want to hear, it's a lot easier to shut out the one voice of truth. There's this false prophet, and I'm, I'm trying to go quickly because there's so many, so many good verses here, but there's this false prophet that he gets up, and uh, he is so good at false preaching. He, he even makes props. So... I don't know if you've ever been somewhere and a preacher, you know, has something and it kind of adds to the sermon a little bit. And this guy made these like iron weapons, these iron horns. And he says, with these, you shall conquer. And Ahab's like, oh, yeah. Right. So they're, they're making props. They're, there's false preaching going on. And a messenger is sent to the good prophet, Micaiah. 
And the messenger just has the audacity to tell the true prophet, okay, this is what the other prophet said, and you should say the same thing. I really like Micaiah. This is really, I mean, this, this uh, story is also told in Chronicles, but these two places are really the only places where we read about him. But his response is what a true prophet would say. I'm only going to say what God tells me to say. Anything else is either false or in the root of a human heart. Let's skip down to verse 15. Are we doing okay? We're just kind of walking here a little bit. Brother Rick, don't start, you know, shutting the place down on me over here. Verse 15 says, So Micaiah came to the king, and the king said unto him, Micaiah, shall we go against Ramoth Gilead to battle, or shall we forbear or not go? And catch a little sarcasm here. And Micaiah answered him and said, Go and prosper, for the Lord shall deliver it unto the hand of the king. Now Ahab was smart enough to know that this is probably not what God has said. Because Ahab knows he's not living for the Lord. Ahab knows that blessing cannot come from disobedience. Ahab knows that God is not going to pronounce blessing when Ahab has not repented. And so verse 16, and again, you kind of get that, uh, maybe I'm misreading this, but you just got to get that little bit of whininess in, in his voice. And the king said unto him, how many times shall I adjure thee or tell thee that thou tell me nothing but that which is true in the name of the Lord? And then Micaiah says this, I saw all Israel scattered upon the hills as sheep that have not a shepherd. What does that mean? Ahab, if you go to war, you are going to die. And everyone is going to return to their own house, and Ahab, you will not leave that battlefield living, or you will not come back here living. Verse 19 says, and this is uh, Micaiah still talking. He says, Hear thou therefore the word of the Lord. This is what God has revealed to me. He said, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne. Well, you know, we have already read about God sitting on a throne. He's sitting on a throne whether you have a good king that just died or a wicked king that is ruling in Israel. God's still on the throne. And all the host of heaven standing by him on his right hand and his left. Well, we kind of skipped it, but you know, the host of heaven and Isaiah were singing holy, holy, holy. But now there's a little different kind of uh, meeting going on in this heavenly council. And, and uh, the, all of these, these angelic beings of the host of heaven are around uh, the Lord on the throne. And, and God asks this question in verse 20, who shall persuade Ahab that he may go up and fall or die at Ramoth Gilead? This is a crazy passage to me. I love it. Because what is God asking? He's saying, okay, how are we going to get Ahab to die? And some people might think, well, this is really mean of God or this is unjust. Actually, no, this is very just because remember, God said, Ahab, because of what you've done, you've murdered and shed innocent blood. Judgment is going to come against you. And you just do a little study between 1 Kings 21 and 2 Kings 10, and you start counting how many times Naboth's name comes up. It might surprise you because God doesn't turn a blind eye to evil. Now, that should comfort us a little bit, Pastor, because how many of you know that evil is in this world, but there's going to come a day when he's going to right everything. Right is and correct it. He's going to take care of it. Amen. But let's keep going. Uh, <clears throat> justice against Naboth. And one said, one spirit said on this manner, and another said on another manner. But verse 21 says, And there came forth a spirit and stood before the Lord and said, I will persuade Ahab. Verse 22, and the Lord said unto him, wherewith, how are you going to do this? And the Spirit said, I will go forth, and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And God said, thou shalt persuade him, and prevail also. Go forth and do so. Micaiah then says, now therefore, behold, the Lord hath put a lying spirit in the mouth of all of these prophets, And the Lord hath spoken evil or judgment concerning you, Ahab. 
And that false prop preacher, the one that was all high and mighty, he goes up to Micaiah and slaps him across the face and says, when did the Spirit of the Lord leave me and go to you? And Micaiah, he starts saying things like this. You're, you, you, you just remember you saying this because there's going to come a day when you go and hide in your inner chamber all alone. And, and, there, and, and if, if I've spoken what's true, then Ahab is not going to come home. But if Ahab does come back, then I'm a liar. And they, they have this little standoff a little bit. And, and so th- this is just fascinating to me because what is going on? God is sending a lie? I thought God doesn't lie. But we can't forget, judgment has been proclaimed against Ahab. Ahab did not fully repent. Ahab knew that those 400 prophets are not from the true God. He intentionally kept them around just to speak what he wanted to hear. This is what we referred to earlier as willful blindness or the hardening of the heart. So God allowed a lie to proceed from their lips, and it, that lie found a very open and clear path into Ahab's heart. What is this trying to tell us? God will give you what you want. So did God lie? No. <clears throat> he used a lie to prove a point. Because it's, it's so fascinating to me, because after the lie was given, the false prophets say their lie, what does God follow up with? The truth. Micaiah told Ahab, this is why those prophets said what they did. And if you go to battle, you will die. <clears throat> but God knows our hearts, and God knows Ahab's heart. God told Ahab what would happen. So here's a question. What is Ahab going to do? Or I was really thinking about this, Sister uh, Zalki. What should Jehoshaphat do? Again, he's supposed to be the good king. What should he do? What would we do? Or maybe I would even ask it like this. What have we done? I'm preaching to myself, too. <laughs> they go to war anyways. And Ahab, he thinks he knows it all because what does he do? He gets in a disguise. <laughs> Like a disguise is going to stop God's proclamation. So he gets a disguise, and then he tells Jehoshaphat, he's like, hey, but you wear your kingly robes, and, uh, and, and it'll be fine. It'll be fine. And Jehoshaphat's like, okay. I don't know why. But they go to battle, and Jehoshaphat almost dies. The, army, the enemy thinks Jehoshaphat is the, the, the target, Ahab. So they rush him, and Jehoshaphat starts screaming out for the Lord, and the Lord actually, even though Jehoshaphat got himself into this mess, God has mercy on this king and saves him. And then Jeho- uh, excuse me, Ahab's thinking everything's going great. And then the Bible says, but there was an archer. He's, he's, ch- he's looking at soldiers, and, and he's, he's not firing randomly. Like He's not just shooting into the sky. And he, he sees Ahab, although he doesn't know who Ahab was, and he shoots an arrow perfectly in between the armor, and that is the arrow that is going to kill Ahab. Kind of like God said in the previous chapter, and kind of like God said just before they left to go to this battle. Ooh, you know, Pastor, sometimes we can put on masks and we might be able to fool other people. We can't fool God. <clears throat> now, I'm saying this because I've been there. I know. And, we, and if we're all honest, we've done the same thing. We can put a mask on and come to church and, and make people think that either things are just okay spiritually or, or maybe with our families or whatever the circumstance might be. But God knows. <clears throat> God knows. Ahab had a heart, had a heart that was ready and willing to believe a lie. And he had the blind eye set against God's truth so that when the truth was revealed, his heart gets so hardened that he's willing to go to his death. Because believing in lies, it can only lead us to trouble. But this is where 
there's this word that is used in the Bible a lot. It's called justification. And, and we love that word. Paul uses that word a lot too. To justify means to declare righteous. But I just, I just began to, to think about this, Brother Ramirez, that, you know, we better be careful who does the justifying. Because if God is doing the justifying, if he's looking at Abraham and declaring Abraham to be righteous, or if he's looking at our lives through the blood of Jesus and through our our obedience to the Lord and through the Holy Ghost, and he can look at us and say, they are righteous, thank God for that, amen? But when we, uh, you know, we we use another word, uh, excuses. We make excuses to justify or to declare righteous our actions. Because we don't want to change. I don't want to repent. Or this one might be just as bad. I do not need to repent. I'm just kind of walking through this. Are we doing okay? <clears throat> We're talking about the preacher's dilemma today. <clears throat> Jesus said in John 4 that there's going to come a time and, and there's going to be worship that's given to the Lord in, in what? Spirit and, and truth. And we have to make sure that that is how we are obeying the Lord. In spirit and in truth. Now, how, how do these pieces connect together? Well, <clears throat> we do not base our Christian faith on experience alone. Now, what I mean by that, or feeling, we could say. What I mean by that is this. It it is the fact that we have the truth, and then the experience of the Holy Ghost matches the truth. And, And so we can say that we are Pentecostal, and we are apostolic, because those things are connected. They match. It is our experience that is standing on the truth. This is why when you're witnessing, you probably, and, and pastor maybe has a different philosophy. Listen to him, not me. But this is why we should maybe be careful when we say, you just need to come to my church because when you feel, then you'll believe. I had a friend use that once to somebody he was witnessing to, and he just, he just kind of made the Holy Ghost a feeling. And this person he was witnessing to said, oh yeah, I get that same feeling when I'm meditating, doing this, this, and this. And he, could, he basically had to stop witnessing because she just equated her religious experience and meditation at the same level of the Holy Ghost. Why? Because he didn't use the word and the experience. He just used the feeling. We don't live based off of feeling. We we worship whether we feel like it or not. Why? Because he's still worthy of worship. We we tithe anyways because it's biblical. The experience matches the truth. We we serve anyways. We, We minister anyways whether we feel like it or not because it's true. We repent anyways, even if we don't feel like it, because it's true, or it's truth, it's, it's righteous. What am, I, what am I trying to say? I'm talking about the preacher's dilemma, the, the, the hardness of the heart. Let me, illustrate, let me illustrate it to you this way. <clears throat> How many of you, and I think this would be all of us, we've done something and we thought, I don't want to repent about that right now. That's exactly what I'm talking about. That's exactly what the Word is talking about. Because it's in that moment that our heart is either going to be turned towards Him when we surrender. Like we sang about, thank you so much for those songs. I felt very confirmed by, the, by both of those songs we sang today. The freedom of the Lord and standing, lifting our hearts full and full surrender to the Lord. It's going to be in those moments when that, that little temptation comes in, that little hardness of the heart comes in and says, okay, are you going to repent about that? Because if you say no, that's when we're saying, not yet, Lord. 
Or we, we break down and say, no, I've got to repent right now. I've got to get back to the Lord right now. I have to, whatever it is, and I'm using repentance as just kind of a foundational understanding, but there could be so many elements of this, whether uh, we're just surrendering to the Lord in general, or maybe we got to just fall down and just ask him for a refreshing of the Holy Ghost, whatever it might be. The preacher's dilemma is the truth can only make us free, but there is always a choice. So be careful with what you justify or what you hold on to. We don't live by feeling. Now I'm going to say something. I told, uh, well, I already said, uh, pastor's not going to let me preach. I'm going to say something a little controversial here, but I think it's important for us to understand because we're talking about the heart. Okay, now this is, this is me. This is not pastor. <clears throat> I do not see biblically where someone can say that miracles themselves bring revival. And I'm only going to share just a few examples from this, or to, to illustrate this. But what miracles do, they expose the heart of the individuals that are connected to that miracle. I'm going to say that again. Miracles themselves do not bring revival. Miracles expose the heart of the people that are connected to the miracle or observe the miracle. I'm going to give you just, just a few examples of this. We've already talked about the Israelites coming out of Egypt. If we went around the room, how many miracles could we point to that happened in the wilderness? We're not going to list them all, but you've got the plagues. You've got the water that was bad to drink that God provided. We got the water from the rock. Maybe we could just list them all. I don't know. We had the quail, the Red Sea. Okay, this one, my goodness, Sister Lear. Manna every single day. And those, or that, that manna, that was a miracle. And we know that those Israelites were just shining examples of faith and revival. You're laughing because you know. <laughs> no. How many murmurings? and rebellious hearts and attitudes because miracles do not bring revival. Miracles expose the heart. And one of the biz biggest examples to, to me is Lazarus. Lazarus is resurrected. Brother Mooney preached a sermon a long time ago about this passage, and, and what he was articulating is that Jesus is like, he's, he's the great multiplier. He, he's going to multiply whatever is in our hearts. And we would see that in this circumstance, when Lazarus is resurrected, remember, he died, right? And then Jesus took his time getting back. And his sisters were like, if you would have been here, he would have been fine, but now he stinks, he's rotting. And Jesus goes to the tomb, resurrects Lazarus. And then what happens? There were a number of people that did believe but do you know what was solidified in the hearts of Jesus' enemies? We have to kill this guy. But not just him. Not just Jesus. But Lazarus too. Because miracles do not bring revival. Miracles expose the heart of the people that observe the miracle. And I don't want to go too, far, too much further down that road. But what about Ahab himself? Here we are talking about King Ahab. One of the most famous stories in the Bible, one of the most miraculous events was Mount Carmel, wasn't it? Fire falling down from the sky. What a miracle, right? You've got just another couple chapters and Ahab's killing innocent people. It looked like there was a, a short-term revival, but you get what I'm trying to say. I'm talking about the heart. Because if the heart is against God, even if people see miracles, their hearts are not willing to accept it. Their hearts are not willing to, to acknowledge the Lord and his greatness. This is why uh, Brother Carson, he said it like two weeks in a row back in January. He said that we don't chase after miracles. Miracles just follow us. Miracles shall follow them that believe. Now, just on a little bit of side note, Pastor, well then, how are we going to have revival? You just be faithful and keep preaching the truth. You don't have to chase after things. You don't have to try to conjure something up, and I'm not, I'm not trying to 
be controversial. I'm just saying, if you're just faithful and you just trust the Lord and you just keep preaching the truth, the truth is going to do the work. Because guess what? We can't. We're just, all we can do is be faithful. <clears throat> Amen. So back to Isaiah 6. Preach judgment, or excuse me, preach until judgment comes. But Isaiah might have been thinking, and his question almost uh, maybe indicates a little bit of this. Why preach if, if all people are going to do is turn away? Well, a few things with this. Remember the, the parable of the hearts? We oftentimes call it the parable of the soils. Where Jesus says, you know, the seed, which is the word of God, it fell on this type of ground, and, and then this type of ground, and then this type of ground. The four different soils, the soils of the hearts. Some people will hear it. So you preach, because some people are going to hear it. You preach because somebody is hungry. You preach. You keep standing for righteousness. You keep doing what's right. No matter if this is family or some of you teenagers in, in your schools, wherever it is, you stand for righteousness. You stand for what's right because somebody's hungry. Not everybody, though. We can't expect to be popular because three out of those four soils, now I'm not a, a mathematician, but that's not a high percentage for popularity. Let's keep moving. But why else? Why else preach? Now, I, I had taught at CCS for eight years, taught middle school and high school classes, and occasionally had to, had to call a, a young lass or lad over and say, why did you do that? And one of my favorite responses was, oh, I didn't know. And I'm sure you parents out there have experienced this with your children. Uh, but as a teacher, I knew it almost was just comical because it's like, no, you did know. But why preach? Because there will come a day when judgment comes and no one is rightfully going to say to God, I didn't know. God is not going to allow an excuse to get in the way of his righteousness. Whether that's righteousness to pull in and declare somebody righteous or to cast justice on someone who has stepped away from his truth. In the end times, we know this. I'm trying not to just bombard us with these various passages, but how many times do we read in the epistles where, where Paul or Peter, they're talking about false teachers, and they're talking about the deceivers are going to come more and more and more, and people are going to flock to deceit. They're going to want to believe lies. They're going to have hearts open to lies. Why? Because it justifies what they want to do. And notice my tone here. I'm, I'm, I'm trying not to just to put a hammer on us because I'm preaching to myself as well. But how are we going to combat the lies? We have to promote the truth. It's the truth that's going to fight against lies. That's why, okay, if, if, you've got a, if you're somewhere and you start hearing a preacher, maybe even tonight, and it's making you very upset, but they're in the Word, there might be something in your heart that is longing for a lie and not the truth. And I don't say that to manipulate. Because how are we going to know if this preacher or that preacher is, is saying what's right? Because we have the truth. So if this man's up here preaching the word of God, and he's, or Brother Brom or Brother Brothers, whoever, Brother Ramirez, if they're preaching the word, you better get behind them and say amen. You better amen the truth. You better stand for righteousness because that is how we are going to defeat lies. I don't have this here, but my God, help us. Because how many lies are destroying lives in our world today. And just, I mean, I, I, we, know, we know stuff that's going on. I don't need to, to expound on some of these things, but think of the corruption. Think of the wickedness 
that the enemy is promoting in our culture, the lies that are destroying people and families. But the truth shall make you free. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. So let me close with some some application. What do we need to do? Well, a change of heart is essential. In the Old Testament, God says multiple places that He's going to renew our hearts. He's going to give us new hearts. He's going to take away that stony, hardened heart and give us a new heart that's alive. And in the New Testament, well, how does that happen? Well, it's through the infilling of the Holy Ghost. We know that's how that takes place. The the Spirit of the Lord comes into our lives. It changes us. It shapes us. And and this this could be another little study you could do. And just read through those epistles and see how many times the authors speak of a renewal of our minds, the way we think about things. You know, put on the, the, the helmet of salvation because if you can't think righteously, you're probably not going to live righteously. You could, you could do a look at the transformation of the heart and, and how God is, is shaping us. You could, you could do a study on this. And, and so the, the, the changing of the heart is essential. The, the next step might be this. We need to be honest. <clears throat> we need to be honest enough, and this is, you, you probably should not pray this unless you really mean it. But I started praying a prayer that goes something like this God, expose any lie that I am currently believing. But you can't pray that unless you mean it, because if He does, and you don't accept that truth, we're back to the preacher's dilemma. I don't want that truth right now. But we have to be honest. So, you know, God God takes lying seriously. When you read about the list of things that God hates or the things that are going to cause people to, to, if I could say it like that, cause people to go to hell, cause people to be separated from the Lord, you'll see lying come up a lot. Well, it's just a little white lie. No such thing. Is it deceit? Again, not to trash on my students, my former students. I love them. They're great. But, you know, Brother Zalke, sometimes, you know, we, we'd catch a kid in a lie. And they would say, well, we didn't, I didn't lie. And I'm like, but you deceived. The intention was deceit. Even if you didn't, you know that you can be deceitful by not even saying anything. I know you guys all know this, but I'm just saying, God, why does God take lying so seriously? Because it's a distortion of what's true. It's a distortion of what's true. First John <clears throat> 1 verse 8 says, If we say that we have no sin, hmm, we deceive ourselves and truth is not in us. There's no forgiveness there. There, there, There's no mercy there because God can't work with deceit. As in if we're justifying our actions, if we're trying to do these things of our, you know, this willful blindness. God can't forgive willful sin in the sense of, well, I'm going to do this and then just ask God to forgive me because it doesn't really matter anyways. But verse 9 says, if we come to a place, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Again, even though that word is not there, justification is a real deal. But what what I love about this is that word confess there, that literally means to say the same thing. What does that mean? If we truly confess our sins in repentance, we are telling God, I know what you think about sin, and I think the same thing. I know how you feel about this, and I feel the same way. It's a place in our hearts of humility to say, God, I know how you feel about this, and I want to align myself with the same attitude. We don't live by feeling. 
Whether we feel like repenting, God's like, it's unrighteous. I don't like it. Or disconnect yourself with that person, Jehoshaphat. You shouldn't be with them. That's not right. What does God say about something? That's what we need to say about it too. Jeremiah 17.9, and I'm coming to a close here. Jeremiah says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? That means sometimes we can't even know what our own motives are because the selfishness and self-preservation that's in our flesh, we can say, well, I'm doing this because of something else, and deep down we're like, well, on the outside... (laughs) But God knows our hearts, and he's going to give us what our hearts want, what our wills desire. I'm going to ask Pastor to just come and close this out and maybe pray, but I just, I've been so struck. This, this is, a, I'm giving you another one. Another thing you can study is the, are the Beatitudes from Matthew 5, the beginning on the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the pure in heart for... They shall see God. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Those Beatitudes, when you read them carefully, they deal, well, the whole Sermon on the Mount deals with the issue of the heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. Only those people are going to see the Lord. It's the Lord that brings purity. It's those that that hunger and thirst after righteousness. Now look at that verse, because that talks about our motives. Because if you're not hungry for the Lord, again, he'll give you what you want. And look at that little promise right there. If you hunger and thirst after him, you're going to get more and more of him. Blessed are those that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Well, what does that mean? What that verse means is that those that mourn due to their sin, they shall be comforted. Those that mourn in repentance shall be comforted. Well, why would we mourn? Because we're confessing and we're knowing that, Lord, whatever my life is, I want it to be aligned with you. And it took me back to Psalm 51. The, the, the tragic sin of David as a, an adulterer and a murderer, but when he was confronted by a preacher, the truth, he said, create within me a clean heart, O God, and purge me. He said, you desire truth in the inward parts. And David pours himself out mourning over what he's done. And, and how do we see David? He, he's a forgiven man after that point. He, he cha- you notice after that, he never takes another wife. He, he changes his lifestyle. And we know that God made all these wonderful promises to David. Jesus himself is called the son of David. So again, what am I trying to say? The preacher's dilemma. Our hearts can get in the way sometimes. And it's in those moments where we have to stop ourselves and we have to realign ourselves. And I'll just end it with this one little idea from the song that we've already sung. I surrender. I surrender. Can we just do that? Can we just raise our hands?